0: so hello here we are welcome to this special question and answer session where we'll be focusing on the island's vaccination rollout program hope you're having an enjoyable weekend i'm james davis and my job is to put your questions to those making the decisions about your health and your life right now really just to try and explore and, and drill down a bit more into specific areas and issues time simply does not permit at the regular media briefings i've got to say thank you for such a depth of questioning and a huge response in in fact i'm i'm told the government communications team has been inundated over the last few days since its request i will endeavor to ensure we ask as many as possible over the next hour or so, which hopefully provides a a, a balanced flavour of what you're interested in. And uh, then perhaps we'll have to break into two parts, simply because of the sheer volume, and perhaps hold a further briefing. But without further ado, let's press on. We have been joined by Catherine Magson, the Chief Executive of the Department of Health and Social Care, and Dr Henrietta Hewitt, Director of Public Health. Hello to you both. Thank you for your your time. It's been quite a week, what with the the debate over the Oxford vaccine and the the possible modification of border restrictions as as cases fall in the UK. Um, As a starter for 10, um, if I may, the vaccine rollout, it appears to be going well locally. Um, I'd be interested to know the the percentage uptake, if that's possible, from, from those invited so far.
1: Yeah, absolutely, um, no problem at all. I'm hoping that your, uh, your your listeners will be used to seeing the vaccination dashboard as well, which where we where we hold all this information. It's very comprehensive, um, and it details quite a lot of information around all the different groups as well, and who has been invited, and um, the percentage for those invitations. So at the moment of the phase one cohorts, which is what we're reporting, um, it's 46.71%. Um, so of all those that have had an invitation and um, are um, are registering, and then have, have, have had a vaccine. Um, we we also report on that dashboard the number of people who are booked in the next seven days. It's a rolling thing. We're working about three or four days in advance at a time, um, and how many are booked for their first and the second dose within there. We're really delighted though that the the top three groups, which is um, obviously the most vulnerable um, in relation to the strategic intent of this program, which is to protect those from from death ultimately mortality, um, is that we're over um, we're at nearly a hundred percent. Well, we actually record one hundred percent on the care home there's just one resident and that's in total and then with the other two groups we're well over 90 percent now um so you'll see if if people want to have a look at that they can play around with those drop down menus and look at all the different cohorts and take a view um on the percentages as they grow on a daily basis
0: thank you some countries have, have suspended of course the use of um the AstraZeneca jab um, about concerns over blood clots. In recent days, the health ministers publicly encouraged people not to cancel their appointments and, or indeed ask the team for a different vaccine. Have, have you seen any evidence of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine causing an increased risk of clots?
1: Um, no, not on the of man. No, we haven't had any instance of that at all. And um, the vaccination board, which is how we monitor this program, meets on on a weekly basis. It has been doing for for many many months. In fact, we've stepped it down um, in the last few in the last few weeks because we're really comfortable how the program is running. Um, and actually, as part of that review on a weekly basis, we look at lots of things, not only the operational management of how it's going, the bookings, how many people are registering, and um, how many vaccinations are done, but also wastage. Um, uh, So if if there's any vaccines that we're not able to use on a daily basis, which I'm glad to say is at a very, very minimal level, and we have a process in place to bring people forward during the day to ensure that we don't. And then thirdly, which is directly linked to your question then, is there any clinical issues? So has anything been flagged to any of the sites? Has there any been any yellow cards, which is how we encourage people to, to register any concerns that they might have or reactions that they've had? Uh, but no, we, we've not had any due cause for concern. And Henrietta, then in a public health role, is linked in with the UK Public Health England Network to, to monitor the position on an ongoing basis. So we're delighted to see the news from yesterday. And clearly um, it's it's very much part of our, our, our programming to continue in the way that we've been we've been progressing. Well, Dr Ewart, if I I may, what are your professional views
0: on the concerns raised across the EU?
2: Well, I think they've now been definitively answered by the European Medicines Agency, which published its findings yesterday, and of course also for the UK um, by the Medical and Healthcare Products Regulatory. Agency who have also completed and published their own investigation. I think one of the problems with this whole issue is that the term plots covers a massive range of conditions. And those conditions are actually very common. So they would be seen at quite a common level across any population regardless of whether or not people have had vaccines. So the key issue is, is this a causal relationship between the vaccine and the clots? Or is it simply an association that is just casual? The person was going to have a clot anyway and it just so happens that it was the same day or a couple of days after they had the vaccine, but actually the vaccine had nothing to do with it. Um, Now, it's also worth saying that there is one particular type of clot which has come out as being a particular interest um, in this whole issue of vaccine concern. And that is something called a cerebral venous thrombosis, which occurs in the the veins in in the brain. And it's associated in this case presentation or the case presentations that have been seen and raised concern with thrombocytopenia. So the individual's platelet level has dropped and they've had a clot in a vein in the brain. And that actually is something that is very, very rare normally. It's not totally unheard of, but it's rare. And what the EMA has said is that clots generally, there's no concern at all. This particular type of clot associated with thrombocytopenia, because the numbers are so incredibly tiny, they can't actually definitively rule out a link. But That brings us back to the issue that is always present in science, which is that it is very, very, very difficult to prove a negative. So what they've said is we can't prove a link, but we can't definitively prove that there is no link. So the advice is, have the vaccine, don't be concerned about the vaccine, but should you develop a persistent headache that goes on for four days or more, seek medical attention. So that's where we are at the moment. It will obviously continue to be carefully monitored. um, But the issue is that this particular type of clot is extremely rare anyway, and it certainly hasn't gone up a level in terms of incidence in such a way as would make one think, oh, look, there's definitely a signal going on there regarding the vaccines, but it cannot yet be totally discounted as a link. Well, that, okay. that leads
0: us in nicely, actually, to a question from um, Leanne uh, and Jay. If actually, they they've both asked effectively the same question. Catherine Magson, are we monitoring the, the side effects, the potential side effects? <laughs>
1: Yes, we do. So um, as as I talked about a little bit earlier, then we we regularly monitor it. We do it on a weekly basis. We look at individuals immediately. And then the team, because it's all part of DHSC or an integrated health and care system, we're able to monitor and we follow through anybody that does come through or whether it's through any part of the system uh, where they may be be registering that they've got issues. Um, But ultimately, um, what we really want people to use is to use the yellow card system. And then the information that we send out, um, we send out to everybody, goes for a vaccination and they'll find it on our website around coronavirus and the vaccination programme. It tells you how to register any of these concerns. and um, So they're really for about recording any side effects and it's obviously feeding into the wider system that is ultimately monitored through public health. Um, but as Henrietta says, if anybody is uh, got any cause for concern after their vaccination, then they really should uh, contact their, their, their GP, a, a, their clinician and a professional to have a discussion. Are you aware
0: of any, any um Cases on the island where there have been side effects, particularly.
1: No, we haven't. As uh, the the only issues that we've had so far are really uh, generally, uh, as uh, as everybody's saying, which is which is a sore arm. Um, People may get a a headache. Um, They, um, for a short period, feel fatigued. That's also a common one as well. Um, Or feel achy. So very similar to the symptoms that you would get perhaps after a flu vaccination. So predominantly that is what we're seeing. And and even in those circumstances, people are encouraged to use the yellow card because it's really important that we're able to monitor the full effect of the side effects of this vaccination.
0: Leslie is asking... um if she has the right to choose which vaccine she receives. I think this has been touched upon on and off a little bit in the last few weeks.
1: Yes, James, it's a question that's regularly asked actually um, through a variety of different routes, um, whether it's people registering for vaccine or or thinking about what's coming and, and the information that's out there for consideration. So as an as an island, um, you know, as as the Isle of Man itself, we're not able to choose. We have um, a supply that um, is is procured and provided to us by the UK government. Within that, we've got a set amount of allocations of vaccines. Um, And as everybody knows at the moment, that is Pfizer vaccination and then the AstraZeneca vaccination. There is a third one that's also planned and due, subject to approval. We may get um, in a few weeks. months to come. So we're capped by that amount um, and effectively it's profiled um, throughout the period from January to, uh, to September. So um, we're really clear, therefore, um, that actually the importance here and the strategic aim is that people are vaccinated um, as soon as they can in line with those deliveries, and that we make sure that we give people the first and second dose to maximize the, the efficacy and the immunity that it provides so um so both vaccines that we have are available at the moment to use they're tested you know clearly very thoroughly. Um, they, they are authorised for use on an emergency basis. Um, they, um, people should be assured, therefore, and um, that both those vaccines are highly effective and protect them from COVID-19. In fact, the longer we go on, the more evidence there is of that case of both vaccines. They both give in that evidence high protection, and that's our primary aim, um, and good safety profiles. So the JCVI, JCVI itself, which you often hear about, which is the group, the, the expert group in the UK that have set the, the policy direction of which we follow within the department and therefore as part of this vaccination program and um, also don't advise on a preference they're really clear that both offer this high protection. And actually, for operational and pragmatic reasons, some of which I've just mentioned, which is around the deliveries themselves, um, and to enable that extensive and timely coverage, that people just really accept the appointment that they are given. Um, and, and that's how we run it. That's how the one-on-one system run it when they have their vaccination bookings and offers. And I'm delighted to say that we um, that everybody works with us in that way. There are a couple of instances that just to bring to people's attention where we do clinic. Um, Suggest that um, a specific vaccine is taken. So um, um, the Pfizer vaccine is, is allowed, is given authorization for those between 16 and 18. The AstraZeneca vaccine isn't. Um, so for those, particularly now, we're, we're vaccinating those between 16 and 64 and you may already be aware also that we're vaccinating um, individuals with learning disabilities earlier um, then a number of those individuals if they are between 16 and 18 have been directly pointed to the Pfizer vaccine because that's the authorization that we have and then there are also a very small number of specific clinical conditions and they are very secondary care sort of consultant-based focused either the gp or the consultants will advise those individuals directly and we do absolutely accommodate that where it's needed um tell me how how does it work um we're
0: told that there's we're told there's um a reduction in in national inbound vaccine supplies at at this time at the end of the month the it's been anticipated there's a buffer the health minister says the island's contingency is in place but richard Um, is asking, in view of the EU's sabre-rattling, good to have an opinion, Richard, um, over AstraZeneca's uh, ability or inability to meet production forecasts, Richard wants to know, uh, Catherine Magson, should we be stockpiling Pfizer doses for second vaccinations?
1: Um, No, that isn't the approach we're taking, but we've taken a a strategic approach throughout to have a buffer of supplies in order to be able to keep the vaccination programme going. Um, And that's that's clearly visible. People we often talk about, you can see in in the dashboard that I referred to earlier, so you can see the stock that we're holding to allow that. That buffer varies. Um, depending on where we are in the week in reality and actually where we are in the vaccination delivery for that week, depending if we're doing first doses or second doses and so forth. Um, We've also changed in line with our evidence um, the timing of the second doses, um, sorry, in line with the evidence that's been published. Um, And actually I can confirm that we will be moving to 12 weeks for anybody who is being booked onwards. We've actually implemented that change over the last few days already. Um, and at all times what we're doing is we're keeping an eye on to make sure that the throughput allows us to continue to vaccinate and um, we are all aware that there has been some changes in in the, uh, pro- uh, the production or i should say the accelerated program that we were um, likely to have and um, particularly during the back end of march and into april it's been publicised in the uk and we we get to our percentage of that so the impact of that is the same for us uh, from a percentage basis. So we're just working through that at the moment and determining what impact that has on our vaccination programme. Um, and, and we will, where we can obviously try and maintain at all possible times that buffer to allow that to continue. And, but I think the Minister has always been really, really clear throughout this that ultimately um, we are always subject to supplies, we're always subject to delivery, and our job is to, is to continue to run a well-managed programme to ensure that we maximise the opportunity opportunities as of when the vaccinations um, uh, uh, land on the Isle of Man and we continue to give everybody breed those, those, those first and second doses as quickly as we can. If
0: somebody, tell me, if somebody passes away and has COVID, is that automatically classed as a, as a, as a COVID death or, or do the authorities differentiate between that and somebody who may have COVID alongside a raft of other conditions and subsequently passes away?
1: So the way we report, and this has been the same on the Isle of Man since last March, is we report individuals who've died with COVID and those individuals who have died of COVID. So the main reason for their death. So um, so that's the reason we've reported. That's what we've always done. And we've not changed that position. Thank you. Thank um-
0: one more question, I want to move on to Dr You, but one more question, if I may, from Simon. He wants to know, given the islands effectively being COVID free and therefore has perhaps had limited immunity in the population for the majority of eight or nine months out of the past year, and that our population's generally older, he, he was asking, was there any justification for us as a nation to receive a larger allocation?
1: Um, no, um, it's been clear from the start. Um, obviously, we've been delighted that the UK have procured and purchased and, and supplying us with these vaccinations. Um, there is no option to do that. Um, we receive, and I think we've talked about in the past, 0.13% of the vaccinations um, that the UK have uh, have purchased, procured. Um, we receive that according to the schedule. We work in exactly the same way as the other uh, Crown dependencies in Jersey and Jersey, Jersey, um, and the other devolved nations. So um, we wouldn't be in a position to be able to undertake that sort of thing to that size and scale on the Isle of Man, and it's important um, and, and actually also linked to the indemnity that we provide that's provided by the UK. That we're part of that. That the very much bigger system in how this is managed.
0: Look, looking further ahead, and given that it looks like we're going to be living with with COVID for for who knows how long. Do you see, uh, Dr. You at an annual jab like this in the future?
2: Yes, I think there will be a need to um, revaccinate, and I think that will be based on the emergence of new variant strains of the virus that are able to evade the current vaccines. Now, whether that will fit into a nice seasonal annual framework for revaccinations or boosters... Um, is more difficult to say because the variants and the behaviour of this virus are not exactly analogous to flu, which does tend to follow a nice seasonal timetable um, so that one can vaccinate in the run-up to the flu season from sort of September time, and then protect people over the winter season when flu's at its peak. Um, the issue with COVID is that it is much less seasonal in that way, and the variants uh, um, appear, as we're seeing, in a fairly sort of random fashion. So I think the answer is yes, there will need to be tweaks to the vaccine and update vaccinations, boosters. But quite how that will work in terms of a rolling programme, I, I think we've yet to see.
0: R- Rob has uh, asked a question. He wants to know what what how difficult is the future? What does it look like for, for those who either choose not to be vaccinated or medically unsuitable?
2: Well, they will continue to be at risk so long as COVID is circulating and it does not look as though vaccination of itself will be sufficient to bring the circulating levels of COVID down to very, very low levels. I certainly don't think we're looking at a vaccine that can lead to eradication of COVID. Very few vaccines actually do that. Um, I mean, the, the classic example of one that did was smallpox. But apart from that, it's it's an incredibly difficult thing to do with vaccination. So we're probably looking at getting to a position um, which might look more like measles where where you have high levels of vaccination populations are largely protected but there will often be subsections within the population where you have communities who for whatever reason whether it's their personal cultural or religious beliefs or whatever else has led them not to accept vaccination and those then become the risk for triggering outbreaks which can then sometimes move wider into the population and find the small numbers who haven't been vaccinated, maybe because they were medically um, inappropriate for vaccination or whatever. So I think there may continue to be times when people who are not vaccinated will need to be advised to take particular care. Um, Obviously for some of them, if they've decided for whatever reason not to be vaccinated, to an extent that is clearly their choice, but there will be others in the population who either had a medical contraindication to vaccination or have had vaccination, but maybe will not get the full protective response. And that may be people who are immunosuppressed and therefore, by definition, have an immune system that does not react as well as those are people who are not immune suppressed and they will probably get lower levels of protection from the vaccine. So there may be ongoing issues about people in those groups being aware of circulating levels and when they look high um, and you know hopefully this will be something that we can as public health authorities keep under surveillance and advise the public accordingly but there may continue to be times when people in the groups we've just mentioned may need to take particular precautions
0: interesting thank you very thank you very much michelle thank you for your question michelle michelle for you dr you literally just wants to know why the public should have this vaccination
2: to protect them from the effects of COVID, um, and increasingly the evidence looks as though it will protect transmission to others. If we look at why should they have it for themselves, um, obviously the greatest predictor of serious illness, need for hospitalization and death is actually advancing age. So you could say, well, I'm 30. Um, therefore I don't need the vaccine. Uh, Now, again, we need to look at other things in that. If you are 30 with underlying health conditions, if you're 30 and you're overweight or obese, you have a much higher risk of developing serious illness than somebody of the same age who does not have those things. And if we look at age groups and the age-adjusted risk of serious illness and hospitalisation, then clearly that risk comes down to really quite a low level once you get under 40 and certainly under 30. But if you look at the numbers in those age groups overall and you apply those age-adjusted risks, then you will see that that still leads to a significant number of people who are at risk. And although we can, you know, adjust our own risk and say, well, you know, I'm 30, I've got no underlying conditions, my weight is normal, I'm fit and well, um, you will have a lower risk within that spectrum, but you are not guaranteed not to become ill. And in addition, there is the additional risk of non-COVID, which can strike at any age, And doesn't seem to be linked just to serious illness and that we are not fully understanding yet because obviously time has not rolled out for us to be able to see how long COVID plays out over years but It does appear to be a condition that has a burden of ill health on people and as far as we can see so far that burden of ill health may continue to be felt by them for some considerable period of time with all the impact that has on their life and on the life of their loved ones and those around them.
0: Are either of the the vaccines effective against the new strains, all the new strains?
2: Um, The current vaccines that we have here, the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca, are effective against the Kent variant, which is the predominant variant now in the UK. And it's also the variant that is currently driving the outbreak that we have here at the moment. So the vaccines are effective against that. There are concerns about whether there is reduced effectiveness against the Brazil and the South African variant and that is why most countries are trying to take care not to let those variants get across their borders and not to seed outbreaks because that could give us problems with the vaccine. Um, obviously, the UK has quite a strong border approach there with a requirement for testing and quarantine in hotels for people coming from risk areas for those variants. So that means that anybody arriving here, if they came from one of those risk areas, will already have done the UK quarantine and testing. When they get here, we'll require them to do our self isolation and testing testing
0: regime as well. I I realise you can't go into patient specifics, nor what I ask you to, but according to the government's dashboard, very few of the the current cases are in the older age bracket, which of course is an indication, of course, that the the vaccination's working. Most cases are in the younger bracket who are less likely to get seriously ill. So so have we got some demographics at the moment as to who is in hospital?
1: Yes, so I I can give you I can give you a feel for that, yes. Um, so we watched this very, very carefully, as you would expect. Um, and um, at this stage at the moment, the pattern that we've seen in this particular outbreak is is predominantly around um, the 50s and 60s-year-olds, um, and actually more men than than women. Um, they and generally those individuals have had underlying health conditions um, that Henrietta has just referred to so uh, maybe overweight or um, are generally or, or, or unwell or unfit or, or potentially diabetes um, those types of conditions that's where we're seeing the most impact at the moment and to be honest that's following a similar trend that the UK have seen as well um, so, so not unusual um, but at this stage that's what we've seen over the, certainly over the last few weeks and obviously we're we're uh, because of the position the hospital generally sees the admissions sort of seven to ten days after the initial cases are uh, come to light so we're really very much at that at the intensity and the peak of where we are at the moment with managing the position um and that's it has been the position now for for quite a number of days in that blend of demographics
0: what well, well, have they had the vaccination most of these individuals in in question
1: so um, I, I can't answer that. We don't, that's not, that wouldn't be appropriate to do so. And actually the way that we report around vaccinations um, is we will, we obviously report using the dashboard that I talked about, and you can see the age groups in there if you toggle down. Um, but and what we will do is we will go through and we'll do some, we shall do some public health analytics and reporting with Henrietta's team. And then, um, the, what also is supported with the UK is this programme continues and the impact of the vaccination. Um, so um, we, won't, we won't publish whether those individual's hospital had a vaccination or not that's up to them that's their personal choice and actually uh, what we ask people to do um, is that to notify their GP if they choose not to have the vaccine. Um, Anybody who has had the vaccine part of the process is then that we send that medical information through to the GP and the GP puts it on their record. So what we're going to do moving forward is we're going to report the vaccination stats against those medical records um, as we go along Um, but the the dashboard itself gives you a very good feel and as i've mentioned already we've got extraordinary high uptake um and we're, and we're really we're really really delighted so far and how progress has been made and then just to give some comfort around those that feel a little bit unsafe and sure i've heard some information uh, some of the publicity come out and um, um, then what we're doing also as part of this program with primary care is we'll be asking the GPs then to contact those who've decided either not to have the vaccine or so far haven't um, had the vaccine and let them know, um, and then talking to them and saying just talking it through and, and having that conversation that clinician to their to their patient that they know, um, and they know in the community as their as their practitioner to just talk through the benefits, you know, as, as Henrietta has just described.
0: Thank you. Mark makes a point. He says that that understanding who is in hospital appears to be pretty key, actually, to understanding the success of the vaccination programme and compelling evidence to, to persuade anti-vaxxers to get jabbed, he says. Is the acid test the number of hospital cases? Is that, is that fair to say? Because obviously, in recent days, it, it's risen fairly significantly.
2: Um, It would have to be said that it's not the acid test on its own. Um, There are a number of issues about the vaccine in relation to this, or indeed in relation to anything, Um, and that is firstly no vaccine is 100% effective, so even if the entire population was vaccinated, we would still see some cases, people getting infected and potentially becoming seriously ill and hospitalized, but clearly they would be massively reduced. The other thing about the vaccine is the timing for it to be effective, um, which means that even if we were being able, which we can't for confidentiality reasons, as Kathleen has explained, but if we were able to put out data on who's been admitted and had they or had they not been vaccinated, one would have to interpret that with great care. Firstly, at the point that we, at someone has their vaccine, it's quite possible that they might already be infected and asymptomatic. So therefore, the fact that they would go on to develop COVID within the days after the vaccine is actually not a reflection on the vaccine. It's the fact that they were infected even before they had the vaccine. The second point is that immunity from the vaccine does not kick in, kick in immediately. It takes at least two to three weeks to start building up that level of protection. So again, if somebody gets infected within that window, you will see infections and you will see serious infections and hospitalisation. So all of that needs to be taken into account. And in fact, as the studies are being done that look at the real world experience, very often they will present one data set which looks at, you know, serious people who became ill with COVID after vaccine, um, you know, taking the date of the vaccine as the start point. And then they'll often present a second data set where they've cleaned that, as, as we say, to take out the first three weeks of data, because in that window, it could either be people who were infected when they had the jab or became infected before they were immune. So it's really the acid test, if you like, is what happens after that three weeks.
0: Is vaccination, though, ultimately going to be reducing hospital cases, do you think?
2: That's absolutely what we expect to see. That's the basis on which or one of the bases on which the vaccines were given their authorisation for use. That was the end point in the studies, people becoming infected. And on top of that, the serious infections and hospitalisations. And on top of the trial data, we're now seeing real world data that confirms all of that as well.
0: Let's try and rattle through some more here, actually. Um, Ali has says he's heard that people who've got COVID have antibodies in their immune system for for six or nine months. Uh, I suppose, is that true? And, And two, his question, should they have the vaccine?
2: Uh, Yes, they should have the vaccine, even if they've had a prior um, infection with COVID or possible prior infection with COVID. Yes, the duration of antibody um, protection, whether that's from a natural infection or immunity, is not yet fully known. Immunity is due to both antibodies That's your your B cells who produce antibodies, but it's also due to another type of cell called a T cell, which you can't measure in the blood simply, um, and which isn't reflected in the antibodies. So we do know from the seroprevalence studies that were done after the first wave of COVID, that people who were infected have detectable levels of antibody in their blood, at least until three months, but thereafter it starts to fall off. Now, what we don't know is whether the protection um, from your immunity falls off in the same proportion as your antibodies do or whether the antibody level is not so key because actually you've got t-cells sitting there which if you were challenged again with another attempted infection from covid your t-cells would swing in your b-cells would fire up again and start producing more antibodies and your t-cells would do the things that t-cells do so we don't really know and we don't know the duration of immunity, either from natural infection or from immunisation. And these are all things that, that we're learning about as we have the real world experience and time unfolds over which we can measure and learn.
0: That leads us I'm nicely actually to a question from, from Scott. Uh, I suspect this is probably for you Catherine Rags and he says in, in the unlikely event that, that harm is caused by the vaccine in the long term either directly or, or indirectly, is there something in place to, to compensate those involved? <laughs>
1: Yes. So um, the short, uncomplicated answer is absolutely yes. Um, the complicated answer, and and, and people will, will remember that we actually took quite a lot of time to get this right at the front end. It's really, really important, uh, not least for those individuals who are vaccinating, but also for the vaccinators themselves. Uh, and that was getting all the paperwork in place where um, we had all the indemnities and, and covers that we needed. Um, this is a huge programme, um, and, and actually um, it's it's a new Vaccine, um, and as the Isle of Man, um, like the other Crown dependencies, um, we're looking for the, uh, an indemnity from the UK to support us in this position. Um, it was provided, uh, and, and within that, technically, this is why the reason is yes, there's, there's provisions therefore for compensation of a person harmed by receipt of a vaccine. So, um, so if it's anybody who suffers, in effect, from a long-term, directly or indirectly, um, by an adverse effect. So um, that is in place. It's quite a complex back-to-back arrangement with the UK. Um, but And it's really, really important within this, and this is another part of the jigsaw that we've taken so long at the front end to get right and has been fundamental to the success of our programme and the way we've done this, um, is that we have to follow the rules that are set down really carefully in order to be ensure that, that that indemnity, that back-to-back crown indemnity it, it is in place. So those rules are around how we store the vaccine, how we handle the vaccine, how we administer the vaccine, who does that. Um, um, So all of that has been really carefully well managed. Um, That's part of the reason why we've had these two very large hubs in order to be able to do that and make sure we've got really good clinical safety, patient safety and controls around making sure that this works really well. And then there is also this third element um, to this, um, which is, and I'd explain it's a bit of a complicated answer, um, but it's called the Vaccine Damage Payments Act, which is in 1979 in, in the UK. And it extends to, to the Alevman. And as part of the, uh, the changes around the vaccination programme, that act was amended um, to include the COVID vaccine, And effectively, um, it it allows up to 120,000 for anybody who is, um, was or severely disabled as a result of receipt of a vaccine. So those are all clearly worst case scenarios. Uh, And as I've mentioned earlier, you know, we've got very strong evidence around the the safety um, of these vaccines. But it was very, very important before we started the programme that all of those things were in place. Well, let's
0: let's hope it uh, it obviously doesn't come to, to anything like that um expectant mums uh, dr you um should they have the vaccine ellie asks is it likely that pregnant women will be advised to take it when people in their age range um it, it's time for their appointments
2: currently um the jcvi is recommending that pregnant women are not specifically included in the vaccine program. The issue here is that pregnant women are very, very rarely included in any trials for anything. And similarly, they have not been included in the COVID vaccine trials. The COVID vaccines cannot give anybody COVID because they are not live vaccines. They are. They contain genetic code for pieces of the virus, but they do not enable the virus to replicate and infect people. So the risks, therefore, to the pregnant woman and her her unborn baby are incredibly low. However, because of the lack of data, the JCVI is currently recommending, as I say, that pregnant women are not vaccinated. However, on the other side, They are not recommending that a pregnancy test or even an inquiry about possible pregnancy be made of women as they come forward in their age groups and for some women who may have underlying conditions that would make them at particular risk if they did contract covid there may be a good reason to vaccinate them during the pregnancy and that small number of women you know if anyone thinks that might apply to them they need to discuss that with their doctor but for the majority of women the recommendation is wait until you've had the baby but if you inadvertently have the jab while you were pregnant, perhaps before you realised it, it's not a matter of concern and there would be no recommendation to do anything differently as a result of having had that vaccination.
0: So so if they're not advised to to take the vaccine, um, will they be advised to shield when we no longer have an elimination strategy in the Isle of Man?
2: Well, the advice on shielding depends on the background level of um, virus. So if there's hardly any circulating, the shielding recommendation comes off for everybody. Um, And that was the case, you know, even before vaccine protection. In terms of risk to pregnant women, um, their risk of infection would be exactly the same as for their age group, but also bearing in mind that some may also have know some of the underlying conditions the diabetes the obesity um, etc that would predispose them to have a worse course if they were to become infected Um, and the good news also is that there is no evidence of harm to the unborn child from a mother who's been infected during pregnancy so really there would not be it's highly unlikely that we would be putting out a blanket advice to pregnant women in the future to shield but there is that issue of individuals doing their own risk assessment and you know judging accordingly perhaps with the help of their midwife or doctor to decide whether extra care is needed for them
0: lots of of members of the public who've contacted um us to ask questions today have asked if they have allergies, uh, Catherine Magson, should they have the vaccine? What, what is their first port of call? Where, where, do, they, where do they get advice effectively?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's a very important question, actually. So um, um, we have a lot of information, uh, first of all, on our website. So the gov.im and the coronavirus links into there. And if you look in the FAQs, it talks specifically around this. Within that, you'll also find um, what we call the patient information leaflet. So the pill. So No different to your paracetamol, you open it up and you've got the leaflet inside the patient information leaflet. It's exactly the same for this vaccine. And effectively what it does in there is it lists the ingredients um, and people then will be able to look through if they suffer from um, allergic reactions um, is to look and check those list of ingredients. If they do have concerns on the back of that, then they should contact their GP in the first instance. Um, And then we've got a process and protocol in place, depending on what that particular issue is, for the, either the GPs say you're absolutely fine, we recommend you carry on as you are, or that we need another route. And in a couple of occasions, and I'm only talking a couple, we have um, um, done some specific dedicated vaccinations up in the emergency department to cover for those individuals in very very severe cases. And then, um, but we also have a, another process behind this, so we do, as I said, encourage people to look in advance. And when they get a letter to invite them, all of that information is in there, and encourage people to do so when you actually turn up for your vaccine itself, there's what we call the consent process. It's a particularly important part of the process um, that reflects that the indemnity position and the management of the vaccine itself that I referred to earlier. And within that, Um, One of the first key questions is about whether anybody has had any systematic um, allergic reaction in any way um, to either a previous dose of the vaccine or the vaccines or component parts. And we do help people if we need to, to look at the ingredients if they haven't looked in advance and are unsure. And then even then within that, if anybody says, "Mm, I'm a little bit unsure about this, that's happened in the past, we have then what we call a step up arrangement in the hubs where a more senior member of staff can have a look at that and make a decision. And it's actually on the back of that where we had the one or two cases where we we asked those individuals to go to to ED and they safely had their their vaccine there. So um, it's all available. People really need to start, have a read of the patient information leaflet first, the consent documentation before they come for their vaccine, get to know what's involved. um, And it really does make the process a lot smoother when they arrive for for the administration of the vaccine itself.
0: Interestingly, there's one here that's come in from Tony and Tony states, if wearing masks stops the transmission, why socially distance? If socially distance works, why isolate? If isolation works, why lockdown? Discuss. It's like an A-level question, that, but I I can't resist that one. Who's going to take that one?
2: I'm going to take that one. And the reason is it's our lovely Swiss cheese model, which we've talked about many times. And I I do like it um, because it actually makes it very clear that no single intervention is the silver bullet that solves it all. None of them are perfect. They all work better in combination than any single one does alone. So that's basically the reason. Obviously, self-isolation is for those who are either infected or at very high risk of being infected. And the rest of the Swiss cheese would be insufficient to mitigate the risk from them without taking them out of the community, if you like, by requiring them to self-isolate
0: I knew I knew the Swiss cheese would would crop up somewhere <laughs> today. Um th- this is an invisible but deadly threat. Of course it is. There are so many um hidden costs to this and I don't just mean financially. If the plan stays pretty much on course and I appreciate it's a fluid document, how potentially how quickly potentially can we pivot from elimination to mitigation do you think?
2: That depends on the rollout of the vaccination programme and it depends on the levels of infection both here, which obviously we're currently working very hard to get back down to local elimination again, but obviously we are always at risk for levels of infection in the jurisdictions surrounding us. So um, those continue to be factors in terms of when we can move from um, elimination to mitigation. This actually could do with some modeling to try and understand better how that looks. And that modeling is actually highly complex, both in terms of generating the evidence that you feed into the model and then the assumptions that you put around that evidence and then running it through multiple um, cycles of modeling to see how that might play out across a population of our size. Now we don't have the skills to do that stochastic probabilistic type modeling here on Ireland, um, but there are groups elsewhere that do. And we're currently talking to one of the groups that does that for the UK SAGE, the um, expert committee for the UK government and has done some of the modelling that looks at how things might play out across as we get through the summer into the autumn. So we hope to have some of that work done, which will enable us to move to a more quantitative understanding of what this looks like, rather than where we are at the moment with a kind of broad brush narrative of having very good reason from the evidence to think that actually the vaccine is what's going to give us the pivot to move into a mitigation, how we live with COVID here on in. But we do need to understand some of the subtleties of that, such as whether some of our layers of Swiss cheese will still need to be in place, what we will need to have in place for border policy and how we undertake surveillance so that we can identify threats and deal with them before they actually hit us and knock us over. So all of that work is ongoing.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate that that insight um, from, from both of you this afternoon. Um, we are out of time, really. Um, just a reminder, though, for a future Q&A briefing, please do email across any questions you have to covid19 at community support at gov.im. We will try and get as many questions as possible asked at future sessions. Um, Catherine Magson, um, Chief Executive of the Department of Health and Social Care, Dr Henrietta Hewitt, the Director of Public Health in the Isle of Man. Thank you both for your time and for for answering so many questions. Really, really appreciate that. Um, Thank you very much for your company. Stay safe and uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend.